Well, today I'm excited to embark on the study of the Gospel of Matthew, which no doubt will take us a number of years to get through verse by verse, but uh, you got to start somewhere, right, at some time. Uh, There's no need to rush, obviously. These uh, 28 chapters of the Gospel of Matthew have so much rich truth in them, they could feed our souls for the rest of our lives if we just stayed right here. It's a book that's full of so many rich and familiar passages to us, those of us who've been in the church for any amount of time, but still so much for us to learn as we fit all the parts together to understand the overall message of, of uh, Matthew and the overall uh, identity of Christ. It's really what this book is about. It's about answering the question of who is Jesus? And over and over again, that is the aim of Matthew in all of his uh, various narratives and the discourses that he weaves together. The book is constructed around these five major discourses and the narratives that kind of frame them. Uh, And so all the way through, Matthew is, if you will, sparring with the unnamed opponents who would have in his own day been questioning the identity of Jesus Christ. And just to see how all that is woven together is going to be an exciting journey for us. Before we ever get there, though, there's this extended introduction and prologue that has obviously a story of the birth of Christ right at the beginning of it. And, and really, even before all of that, there is this genealogy that opens up the pages of the Gospel of Matthew, 17 verses at the beginning of this book. And while so many people would consider this an incredibly dull way to begin the story of our Savior, the greatest story on the face of the earth, while so many people would want to rush past this section of Scripture, I think it's important for us to take the time to really, really understand what Matthew has to say to us in these verses. In many ways, a genealogy is a very Jewish way to begin a Jewish book written for Jewish people by a Jew. Matthew himself was a Jew and he was writing to primarily at the beginning just his fellow Palestinian Jews. In fact, many people believe that Matthew was first composed in Aramaic, in the language of the Jewish people, before Matthew subsequently came back and rewrote, or at least translated his book into into Greek. And so we'll see Matthew over and over again appealing to extremely Jewish themes, quoting over and over again from Jewish scriptures to prove his point of who Jesus is. And before we... um, can really understand the, the, the message of Matthew then, we've got to get our mindset, we've got to get our, our perspective, if you will, situated well within the perspective of a first century Jew. And a big part of that is understanding this, this genealogy. Really, before I get too far down the road, I want, to, I want to just begin by reading these opening verses, this rather long section. And, but as I read, I want you to Pay attention to how Matthew introduces this list of names, and particularly the people Matthew refers to repeatedly as you go throughout, the the individuals who are named 
numerous times. And even the names of women that are included in this. And then, of course, how he kind of concludes and summarizes it all down in verse 17. This is what Matthew writes in the opening of his gospel. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abuid, and Abuid, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon, to Christ, 14 generations. The Lord has already helped us just getting me through the pronunciation of all of those names. Now we pray for His help to understand why all of this matters. I mean, we read through that and about halfway through, we're tempted to check out because see, we don't normally think in these kinds of terms. Uh, we might have done some DNA test or genealogy study, or maybe our granddad got really interested in this one day. But for most of us, uh, we uh, have only a passing interest in our own genealogy and certainly hardly any interest in anyone else's. But as I said, this would have been meaningful if you were a Jew. In fact, if you were a Jew and really understood a Jewish perspective, you would understand what a bold and powerful opening statement this is by Matthew regarding the identity of Jesus Christ. And you have to understand what Matthew is saying here. And to do that, you really have to understand the history of Israel and and even the sort of social awareness of a first century Jew and all of the social political, historical dynamics that brought them to the point where they are. Just to give you a basic framework, most of you, most of you probably understand that the Old Testament was framed around a couple of key covenants. There was, of course, the covenant that God made with Abraham, whereby he said he would give Abraham 
uh, a multitude of descendants and he would give him a promised land that would be inherited by his descendants. And this really was the capstone of the identity of of Israel. Uh, To be an Israelite was to be a son of Abraham. And only, only those who were sons of Abraham were true Israelites. And it was ultimately this that defined them throughout the first several centuries of their existence until finally it was followed up with a Mosaic covenant that promised blessings to Israel if they obeyed the law of Moses and curses if they disobeyed. And of course, we know the story of the Old Testament that they did disobey and ultimately they faced the curses of this covenant and consequently they were invaded by two kingdoms, Assyria and Babylon, and taken away into captivity. But in the midst of all the darkness of their disobedience, God gave them a ray of hope in the form of a godly king named David. David certainly wasn't perfect, but in so many ways he exemplified the kind of king that Israel ultimately needed because he was a man who at the end of the day pursued God and trusted in God in all of his days. And really from the time of David forward, every subsequent king in Israel was measured based on how they compared to David. And the writers of the Old Testament will bring this to your attention if you read through the Old Testament. They will talk about a king in relation to how he performed in his duties and how he lived his life relative to David. But it wasn't just David's life and his example that brought hope. It was in response to a covenant that God made with David during his lifetime that Israel found hope in dark times. Because God called David to himself when David wanted to build a temple and, and told him, you can't, you can't build a temple in your lifetime, but I'm going to raise up for you a descendant on your throne. He will not only build a temple for me, but I will promise you that you will always have a, a, a descendant on the throne of Israel for all eternity. So no matter what happened with the kings of Israel, no matter how bad their uh, situation was, no matter how how desperate was the, the darkness of their times, no matter what the circumstances of their captivities, Israel could always cling to the hope that God would raise up a descendant to David to sit on the throne of Israel. Now, I've thought about this over the last couple of weeks, just kind of wondering uh, from a social standpoint, from a cultural standpoint, what, what was that like? I mean, how can you frame this up relative to you and I? I'm not sure we have anything like this in our own, if you will, psyche, or our own social consciousness. I mean, it would be a little bit like, uh, like, you know, I guess if your country descended into darkness... And all of your leaders and politicians ended up being corrupt. And you had a general sense that your nation and your culture was on a cultural decline, a slide, if you will, into into oblivion or into self-demise. But you you had a promise that somehow, someday there would come along an idealized leader, like one of the leaders that founded your country, 
Like maybe a, maybe a, a, a renewed George Washington, a renewed Abe Lincoln, whatever your concept is of the ideal founding leader. And you were told your whole life that no matter how bad it got, there was going to come another one like him. And he was going to come and he was going to make everything right. He was going to restore your country, your nation, your culture back to everything that it was originally founded to be, everything it was supposed to be. And somehow you were to place your hope in this and cling to this and believe in this. Sometimes you could just sit back and imagine, no matter how desperate the times were, you could just sit back and imagine what would it be like if we had that kind of a leader again. What would it be like if, if this kind of man were to come back? And all of your hope and your focus could be placed on that. Well, the Jews, I think, held that kind of a hope. They had that kind of a promise. They had been told their whole life about that kind of a leader. And they watched as their country around them disintegrated. They, they felt the pain of the humiliation that was taking place. They were even ripped apart internally through civil wars, through religious divides, through a divide between secular and sacred people, through a, a general decline in religious morality or morality in total. They were kind of watching as their nation unraveled before them, and yet they had been told somewhere along the way there would be this kind of a leader. The problem, of course, is that it had been a long, long time since that promise was made. Israel had fallen into darker and darker eras, more and more corrupt kings, more and more corrupt leaders, eventually captivity and eventually oppression by foreign nations and foreign emperors. By the time Matthew writes, there was no king necessarily in Israel other than a puppet king by Rome. And the prospect of really having a king, much less a descendant of David, was really a more and more remote possibility. But going all the way back to the beginning of the decline, there were these promises. In the 8th century B.C., Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Out of you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose days are from old, from the ancient of days. 8th century prophet Isaiah says, There will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight will be in the fear of the Lord, and he'll judge not by what his eyes see or decide matters, not by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the earth. Another 8th century prophet Hosea says, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in the fear of the Lord into the goodness, into his goodness in the latter days. hundred years later in the 7th century B.C., Another prophet, Jeremiah, 
reminded Israel once again, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up a, uh, for, for David a righteous branch. And he'll reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he'll be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And then in the 6th century B.C., another prophet, Zechariah, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So even as the nation fell into into the, uh, the grip of more and more corrupt leaders, and even as it faced its days of captivity, even as the dark clouds began to sort of gather around the country, God was sending these prophets to remind them, don't give up hope. Don't stop hoping for this king. Uh, Sixth century B.C., in the... Uh, 500s and even 400s as the Old Testament closed, this message was still out there. In fact, as the Old Testament itself was sort of completed, there was an unnamed scribe, many people just simply refer to him as the chronicler, who wrote the book of Chronicles and essentially begins his story with the death of Saul and the rise of David. So so it's really all about David. It's all about David and the promise to David. And over and over again, the chronicler highlights the promise that God made to establish a descendant on David's throne forever. First Chronicles chapter 17, he records the covenant God made with David at the end of David's life. God says, I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones on the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I'll plant them and they will dwell in their own place or their own land and not be disturbed ever again. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly, for from the time that I appoint judges over them, my people Israel, all the way till today, he says, I will subdue their enemies. Moreover, I will declare to you that the Lord will build you a house, and when your days are fulfilled and you walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I'll establish his kingdom, and he'll build a house for me, and I'll establish his throne forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me his son, a son, and I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, that is Saul, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. First Chronicles 17. First Chronicles 22, David reminds his son Solomon of this promise. First Chronicles 28, David presents Solomon to the nation of Israel with again the words of this promise. Second Chronicles 1, Solomon prays that the Lord would fulfill the promise that he made to David. Second Chronicles 6, we have another long section where Solomon reminds Israel once again that God had made this promise. Second Chronicles chapter 7, the Lord appears to Solomon and reaffirms and in Second Chronicles 7:17, 7, and as for you you will walk before me If you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenant with David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man to rule in Israel. 
Second Chronicles 13, Abijah reminds Jeroboam, saying, You ought to know that the Lord God of Israel gave kingship over Israel forever to David and to his sons as a covenant of salt, meaning an enduring covenant. Second Chronicles 21, Jehoram, who acted wickedly, but in that chapter the chronicle tells us, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he made with David, since he had promised to give him a lamp, excuse me, to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Second Chronicles 23, when a priest came to install Joash as king, in verse 3, he said to the people, Behold, the king's son, let him reign as the Lord spoke concerning the sons of David. And we don't need to read through all of the references, but you get the point over and over and over again. The chronicler, as he's telling the story of Israel, decides to include all of these frequent reminders of the promise that was made to David. And he puts all this together, and right as the Jews are gathering all of the writings of the, of the Torah and the Psalms and the prophets, and they're kind of placing all that together into the collection which would make up the Jewish scriptures, they would place the book of Chronicles at the very end. If you had a Hebrew Bible with you today and were to flip through just the table of contents, you would find that the book of Chronicles is the last book in your Old Testament canon. It was placed there at the very end as sort of the, the final statement on the story of Israel and the final reminder of a promise that God made to a descendant of David to place him on the throne of Israel. Now, as the writing of the Jewish Scripture came to a close around 400 B.C., at that point it had already been 200 years since they had a king. It would be another 400 years before Matthew writes. And all of those promises, no matter how often they were repeated, no doubt seemed like a more and more distant hope. In fact, as you move into the time of the close of the Old Testament, there were people who might have held out hope for a king, but it seemed like more and more people just sort of gave up hope. And in time, Israel was passed, if you will, from one foreign power to the next. In the 4th century B.C., they were conquered by Alexander the Great, who eventually died and left four generals to oversee his entire empire, one of them who took over Israel's territory, the Ptolemies, ruled over Israel until they were eventually overthrown by the territory of another general, the Seleucids. And in a in about 150 years after that, there was one particularly wicked ruler, a Seleucid ruler named Antiochus. And he tried to completely stamp out Israel's religion. He tried to completely defile their temple, to slaughter pigs and uh, unclean animals on their altars, to tear down all remaining symbols that they had to their God and to their scripture, to put an end to all practice of Jewish uh, 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 religion and to eliminate all of their sacred books. But there was one devout 
old priest named Mattathias, who led a rebellion, which became known as the Maccabean Revolt. In fact, that's what people celebrate today in Hanukkah. If you recognize, even during the Christmas season, uh, the Jews who are celebrating Hanukkah, what they're celebrating is this revolt. And they're celebrating the day in 164 B.C. when they actually cleansed their own temple of all the pagan uh, um, accoutrements. I use a word from Richard there. To... <laughs> cleanse the temple of all of the, the, the pagan elements that have been brought in by Antiochus Epiphanes. And it swept in a new era of independence for Israel. They overthrew the Seleucids and the sons of Mattathias eventually uh, placed themselves over Israel as first of all a new generation of high priests and a new generation of kings. It ushered in what became known as the Hasmonean dynasty in 141 B.C. Now, it would appear as if Israel was back on their way to independence and back on their way to glory, but rather than leading people into hope, it actually led them into greater despair because a part of Jewish history was a very specific line of high priests which descended from a man named Zadok and as we've already seen a very specific line of kings which descended from the line of David problem was the Hasmoneans were neither of these things and so a lot of people just kind of took it in stride but there were some if you will the purest who recognized that whatever was taking place in this revolt wasn't the work of God. It was illegitimate. In fact, some religious sects formed within Israel during this time, eventually kind of forming into what we know as the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. And they made it their mission to purify Israel, to reestablish the legitimacy of the high priesthood, to reject the false Hasmoneans and to demand that a real line of priests and a real line of kings be installed. One of the groups known as the Essenes who protested maybe more than any of them the, the, the illegitimacy of this priesthood and therefore the Ill, illegitimacy of the entire temple enterprise and all of its sacrifices and all that stuff just in their eyes became worthless and corrupted so that they fled eventually to the desert and set up a community that we now know as the Qumran community. They set up a community to study the Scripture and in their minds to wait for the true restoration of the priesthood and the Davidic king. And the interesting thing is, is if you go back and read all of the available literature that we have outside of the Bible from that two period of time, all the literature that was written from the time the Old Testament ended all the way up to the time of Christ, you would be amazed to find that there was almost no mention at all of a Davidic king. There was no discussion of a Messiah. There was no references to a Christ. It's as if the whole idea just really disappeared from the culture, from the whole psyche of, of every Jew. And it has led a number of 
of scholars to probably, uh, to speculate probably what had happened was you had fearful Hasmonean kings who were followed by fearful Herodian kings who made it their intent to stamp out any mention or any hope of a legitimate Davidic king. We see that as a matter of fact in Matthew chapter 2 when Herod finds out that there was a baby born in Bethlehem and made it his intention immediately to slaughter all the babies who might potentially be born as heirs to the throne. So you read all this literature and and you understand all the history and you're surprised to see almost no mention at all of any kind of Messiah in the Jewish literature. And he kind of begs the question, did they really still hope? Did they really still believe in a Messiah at all? But then when you go to the literature of this community out in the desert, the Essenes, what you find is a number of references in this sort of insulated community that seemingly gave voice, if you will, to a countercultural movement. It was actually in the Qumran literature that you find a number of references to a Messiah, an expression of a hope of a coming king one day who would sit on the throne of David. There's, there's literature called the Psalms of Solomon. There, there are commentaries on the books of Habakkuk and Isaiah and all of those things, which over and over again draw their own sort of community back to this understanding, this hope of a Davidic king. And even as you look into the New Testament itself, what you see is the voice of common people, of a priest named Zechariah in the book of Luke, of the voice of a, of a, a lady named Elizabeth. Uh, what you hear is the voice of a mother named Mary. When they pin songs, they're pinning songs about a hope for a Messiah. You hear the people asking as they encounter Jesus, is this the anointed one? This is a context into which Matthew writes. He writes in a context where it had been dark and descending into an abysmal spiritual and moral situation. Corrupt leaders, corrupt kings, who had it as their intent to stamp out any recognition whatsoever of any kind of Davidic line. And yet you had an abiding hope that had been clung to by just a few faithful people, it seems, that somehow, someday, God would bring back just this kind of leader. And they hear someone begin reading the book of Matthew, Matthew's gospel. And they hear the words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That brings us really to our outline this morning. And we want to just take note of several uh, features that mark Matthew's opening genealogy here. I think these As we note these, we can begin to understand really what his message is all about. These notable features that mark Matthew's opening genealogy. The first one is just simply this, the claim of Messiahship. You cannot 
underestimate. You cannot overlook what Matthew is doing here. He is coming out seemingly in, uh, in the boldest terms out of nowhere with this very clear main point. And Matthew will make, by the way, over and over and over again throughout his gospel, that Jesus is the son of David. That Jesus is the one who was given to Israel and eventually to every nation as a source of hope to draw us out of the despair and the darkness that our, we might find ourselves in at, at, at whatever time. He is the legitimate descendant of David who will fulfill every promise of a Davidic king. He mentions it. You'll notice in verse 1 already, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And then down in verse 6, again, he mentions David and specifically calls him the king. The second half of David, he, the second half of verse 6, he repeats the name David a second time. And down in verse 17, David is mentioned once again. In fact, two more times he's mentioned there. And then finally down in verse 20 again, he includes the fact that Joseph once again was a son of David. But it wasn't just there. Matthew will highlight this again and again and again. Matthew 9, 27, two blind men approach Jesus crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. In 12, 23, he cast out a demon and all the people are amazed and begin saying, can this be the son of David? 15, 22, a Canaanite woman from a certain region comes out and cries out, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Because my daughter, she says, is oppressed by a demon. Matthew 20, verse 30, Behold, there are two men, blind men sitting on the road, and when they heard Jesus passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. In fact, when Matthew tells the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem, he quotes from the Davidic prophecy in Zechariah, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, a foal, a beast of burden. And then the crowds that followed him in verse 9 begin shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So when you add all of that together, you get the very clear picture of what Matthew wants you to understand. And he wants every Jew to understand. And he wants us to comprehend that that it has been certainly a long time since God made this promise and there have been plenty of reasons along the way to give up on the promise and there have been plenty of people who have tried their best to replace it with some other structure. But God is as committed as He ever was to the promise that He made to David. In fact, when you add to this the fact that He... He refers to Jesus as the Christ. You see that in the opening line once again. This is Jesus Christ. God gave His original promise to David. In the Old Testament, it was repeated over and over again. And in time, the prophets just simply began to refer to this coming king as the anointed one. The, the anointed one. You'd anoint a king. He was going to be the ultimate king. And so he was the anointed one. Or in Hebrew, the word is Messiah. Messiah, as we say it in English. But 
when the Jews translated their Bible into Greek, they used the word Christos to translate Messiah, Christ, referring to the anointed one. So this, once again, is a recognized title referring to the descendant of David. Matthew 22, Jesus is debating with the religious leaders of the day who opposed him, and he says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they answered him and said, he's the son of David. So they knew this. Everyone knew this. Everyone knew what the Christ was. And it very much represents that. When you refer to someone as the Christ, you're, you're referring to, <clears throat> to them excuse me, as the promised descendant of David. And so when Matthew uses this term, you might have gotten so used to hearing it in conjunction with the name of Christ, you might just think that's his last name. But it's not. It's a title. He is the Christ. In fact, moving past verse 1, you go down to verse 16, he refers to him as Jesus, who is called Christ. Verse 17, he simply refers to him as the Christ. And then again in verse 18, he's simply Jesus Christ. Again in Matthew 2, Herod hears the rumor about his birth and he goes to the scribes and the Pharisees and he inquires, where is the Christ to be born? And of course we know a very familiar passage in Matthew 18, excuse me, Matthew 16, when Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, or I'm sorry, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So Matthew's message is inescapable. And it's understood in the context of this dark, dark time. This opening genealogy is a bold shot across the bow establishing exactly who he is talking about. Who is this Jesus? He's the son of David. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ for whom Israel and really all the world has been waiting for so long. Well, there's a second notable feature that marks this genealogy that we could also take note of, and that is the calculation of the arrival of his messianic era, the calculation of the arrival of the messianic era. Matthew gives the genealogy, and then down in verse 17, he, he sort of gives us this calculation. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to, Christ, to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, there's no shortage of opinions about why or how Matthew calculates these numbers. And we could easily fill up another hour just sort of going through, tracing out all the details of all the various arguments. But among all the things that Matthew could have in mind as he shares these numbers, I think one of them is abundantly obvious. And that is the fact that based on his genealogy, every 14 generations led to some critical stage in Israel's history. Every 
14 generations, there was a critical moment in Israel's history. It began with the covenant with Abraham. It led to the covenant with David. It led to the Babylonian deportation. And then finally, Matthew says, it has reached its climax in the long-awaited arrival of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Matthew just states it matter of fact. Based on the genealogy he gives, you would expect... At this point, God to have done something. If God had done something on such a regular basis in the past, you would expect Him to do it again in such regular fashion. It's been 14 more generations, he says. Again, we don't have time to trace all of this out, but this certainly reflects a Jewish understanding of history. You and I have a tendency to think about history in a linear fashion. We think about sort of technological or political developments and how history just sort of moves along a line. But for a Jew, history was more a circular matter. It was the repeated patterns of, of Israel's struggles and God's intervention along the way. And so this would ring true even more for a Jew to understand that God is just doing what He's always done all over again. He's intervening in Israel's history. Now, a number of people have had issues with Matthew's calculation here. First of all, because plain and simple, Matthew doesn't include 14 separate generations in his list. In fact, if you add up all the names, there are 41 people that he lists. But if you multiply 14 times 3, obviously you come up with 42 people. So it seems as if something's missing as if somehow he's maybe left somebody out. But that's our first clue, I think, that Matthew isn't necessarily trying to give a strict historical lineage here. What he's done is he's calculated, but he's counted a very important person twice. He's listed one person twice to come up with his calculations. And you'll notice them right there in verse 6, and it's David. Jesse was the father of David the king, and David the father of Solomon, the wife of Uriah. David is the head of one list, the end of another. All of this really is highlighting the fact that genealogies in these days were not like genealogies in our own day. They weren't strict historical records. Joel Kennedy writes about these genealogies. He says, initially genealogies were used to preserve a family's generational succession. But later, he says, they came to be used for the purpose of expressing kingship and social, political, geographical, and religious relationships. He goes on to examine Old Testament genealogies in detail, and he comments, he says, another aspect of genealogies, especially prominent in the book of Genesis, is to observe the chronological unfolding of generations as a form of history, a kind of narrative retold in a highly compressed fashion. George Coates Another scholar says the genealogical structure of the Old Testament provides connection between stories suggesting that the story content in each section is the substance of a genealogical stage. 
Marshall Johnson, who in his book, The Purpose of Genealogy, writes this, the genealogical form can be, said, can, can be said to have become one of the available forms of writing and rewriting history, and thus for expressing nationalistic and religious hopes and beliefs of the people. The genealogical form, he says, could be used as an alternative to narrative or even poetical forms of expression That is, as one of several modes of writing history or of expressing theological national concerns of people. Now, these are scholars, various scholars, who are just simply dealing with Old Testament genealogies and coming to the conclusion. These are not strict historical records. These are are literary genres which are accomplishing much more than just simply history. They're accomplishing the telling of a story. And so as you look in the Old Testament books of like Genesis or Chronicles that incorporate lots of genealogies, one of the scholars describes those books as uh, books whose plot is genealogical. Stories that are basically woven around several genealogical lists that keep popping up as you read throughout those books. George Coates says the genealogical structure provides connection between the stories, suggesting that the story content in each section is the substance, as we said, of the genealogical stage. It's significant, by the way, that Matthew then would begin his letter with a genealogy, especially in light of the fact That in most cases, the last book a Jew would have read in his Old Testament literature would have been Chronicles, which was just a bunch of connected genealogies. And it's as if Matthew is providing a new link in the chain, a new genealogical connection to continue the story. He expects his gospel to stand alongside of the book of Chronicles as the next installment, the continuation of the story of God's plan for Israel. And more than just giving a historical record, he intends his Jewish readers to link in their minds the story he's telling of Christ with all these old stories. You can even see Here that Matthew isn't just giving historical records, but as he gives all of these names, he includes a whole bunch of data that has nothing to do with the genealogy. He mentions, for example, Judah, but then mentions that Judah had other brothers, making up, obviously, all the tribes of Israel. He mentions Perez, but also mentions his twin brother, Zerah, but he also notes that their mother was Tamar, which really has nothing to do with the genealogy. Verse 5, he mentions that Boaz was a descendant of Rahab the harlot. Or in verse 6, he he adds to the fact that this is David the king. None of that extra information really makes any historical difference in the genealogical record. But Matthew's main point isn't to give just a connection in history. His main point is to connect several very important stories. Several very important people. And so the number of 14 is not intended to be an exhaustive list of all the possible names. It's intended to provide a memorable way to organize all of these important stories into a list. Probably for the purpose of helping people not only easily remember it, but easily share the story with others about Jesus Christ. And all that brings us to a third notable feature regarding Matthew's opening genealogy, which is the credibility of his genealogy in comparison to others. If he's writing this to Jews, 
who are so sort of embedded with genealogies, you would think that he would have great concern that it be credible in their eyes. And there's no reason to think that it wouldn't be. Because Matthew does genealogy very much the way that other biblical writers do genealogy. That is to say, if you look at almost any genealogy in the Scripture, it is not an absolutely complete list. Genealogies were kept, but because of the challenges of time to copy them and money and effort, not to mention space to store all of that... Israel began to use abbreviated genealogies. They would drop names that were less recognizable, less important to the overall point they were trying to make with these genealogies. Once a tradition was established that someone was a legitimate descendant of a specific tribe, it wasn't necessary to give every single name in their family tree. And so even when you research genealogies, as I said, in Genesis or Chronicles or the book of Ruth or any of the Old Testament histories, you find that there are names excluded with their list when you compare them with one another. The inclusion, the exclusion of certain names usually explained for reasons of their overall theological or narrative focus. And so even as you look at the genealogy of Jesus... You find the same thing. In fact, when you compare Jesus' genealogy in Matthew to the genealogy given by Luke over in Luke chapter 3, you immediately recognize there are a number of differences, a number of names that are either included or excluded, which brings us to a fourth notable feature of Matthew's opening genealogy, and that is a curse on the descendancy of Jeconiah. A curse on the descendancy of Jeconiah. Matthew gives his genealogy. And you'll notice in verse 11, he includes a notable name, a man named Jeconiah. Or sometimes as he's called in the Old Testament, Jehoiakim. The Jehoiachin, excuse me. He was king in Israel at the time of Israel's ultimate deportation, 597 B.C., when so many of the nobles and the royal line was carried away into captivity. In fact, archaeologists, interestingly, have unearthed a stone in Iraq that has a list of Jeconiah's daily rations as a prisoner of Nebuchadnezzar. It gives all the list of food and the food that his sons were supposed to get. So he was carried away. He was imprisoned by uh, Nebuchadnezzar in 597 B.C. He was a wicked king. And while he was in Israel, led Israel into a lot of sin, even though his reign was relatively short, he was denounced by God. And God sent a prophecy through Jeremiah about him. Jeremiah 22, verse 30, thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, because none of his offspring will succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Listen to that. Jeconiah is cursed by God, specifically saying none of his offspring will ever sit on the throne of David. This was the line that was carrying David's descendants. And this was the line through which you would trace all of the Davidic descendants back for generations. 
Not only that, but Nebuchadnezzar eventually slaughtered all of his close cousins. So this was it. I mean, it was Jeconiah. And so there was an existential threat to the line of David. It becomes obvious Jeconiah was not going to have an heir. Now, the reality is he wasn't childless. And that's obvious as you even look at this genealogy and others. He had children. There was an ongoing lineage, but the curse didn't actually say he would have no physical descendants. The curse said that you might as well count him as childless because none of his offspring will ever sit on the throne of David again. So even while he was the, you might say, the legal line of descent, there was a physical curse on all of his descendants. Now here's the twist, if you will, in the story. As Matthew Matthew makes clear down in verse 18, Jesus was no physical descendant of Jeconiah. His father Joseph was a physical descendant, but Joseph isn't his physical father. Jesus is born not of man, but of the Holy Spirit. Joseph apparently adopting him as his father. And because of that legal relationship with Joseph, Jesus would have legal claim to the throne of David, but avoid the physical curse on Jeconiah's descendants. That's why, by the way, when you examine Luke's genealogy, and you trace Luke's genealogies, you see a significant difference. Because while Matthew traces the genealogy of Jesus through the line of Solomon, David's son, Luke traces Jesus' descent through the line of David's other son named Nathan. Completely different branch of the Davidic tree. And it's obvious that this could not be the same lineage of Joseph that Matthew gives because of that. And it's led a number of commentators to conclude that Luke must be tracing the genealogy back, not through Joseph, but through Mary, which would make Jesus then a true physical descendant of David, but not through the cursed lineage of Jeconiah. So Jesus, in other words, has all the credentials. He has all the credentials. He has the legal credential to the Davidic dynasty, the covenant of David, and he has the physical credentials as a true descendant of David. But the only way, because of the curse of Jeconiah, the only way that could ever be the case is through the miracle of a virgin birth. Which finally kind of highlights spotlights, if you will, the fifth notable feature of this genealogy that we need to just quickly take note of, and that is the concern for those commonly excluded. The concern for those commonly excluded, particularly by the religious elite. And we simply note that Matthew includes the names of several women It wasn't uncommon necessarily to name women. You'll find that even in the Old Testament. Women are named in genealogies. But what's different here is that the women in the Old Testament who are named are almost, or excuse me, are always Jewish. And Matthew, while he certainly has 
included a Jewish woman, most of the men, women he mentions are not Jewish. You would expect him to name Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, uh, some of these well-known Jewish women. But instead, the only Jewish woman he includes, other than obviously Mary, the only Jewish woman he includes in his genealogy is in verse 3, and it's Tamar. It was actually a daughter-in-law to Judah, who when she lost her husband, left her without children, and so she disguises herself as a prostitute, sits by the side of the road, and seduces her father-in-law, Judah, into, into a uh, liaison so that the offspring who are born eventually from that moment, from that union, are born, if you will, under a dark moral cloud. And yet it was that line of offspring through whom the Lord chose to raise up eventually David. And apart from Tamar, the only other women listed here are all Gentiles. Rahab, who was a harlot and helped save the spies who came into Jericho. Ruth, who was a despised Moabite from a neighboring country. And in verse 6, the unnamed wife of Uriah, who we know from the Old Testament is Bathsheba, with whom David had an adulterous affair. She was a Hittite. And yet Solomon was born from that union, from David's adulterous and really murderous pursuits there. Obviously, Rahab's harlotry, Bathsheba's adultery, these weren't the kind of characteristics that Israel normally wanted to highlight in their lineage. These were, you might say, inconvenient truths, especially in a culture that increasingly wanted to present itself as morally superior, morally upright. These were the very kind of people who they condemned, who they marginalized in society. They were the ones who were pushed outside of the temple and outside of the religious life. And when they spoke of their own heritage, they drew attention to people like Abraham and David and Zerubbabel, but never would they draw attention to these people? People who not only had questionable morals, but in many cases were Gentiles. And they tried to conveniently ignore the fact that God had chosen Gentiles to be key contributors to the working out of His messianic plan. There's no doubt, though, that Matthew intentionally includes this. In fact, he names... Some women who are never named in any Old Testament genealogy. But he intentionally includes this to prepare the reader for so much of what he's going to emphasize throughout the gospel that Gentiles are welcomed into God's plan of salvation. In fact, he begins his gospel here. You remember how Matthew ends his gospel. In the last few verses, with a command to the disciples... To go not just to Israel, but to go to all the nations, preaching the gospel, making disciples from among all of them. But even more immediately, including these women in this record of Jesus' genealogy, reminds the readers that God has often sustained His promise of the Messiah by means of questionable circumstances, unusual marital unions, and so in verse 18, as he begins to tell the story of Jesus' birth, and he tells us that Jesus' mother became pregnant before wedlock. Anybody who might be inclined to criticize those circumstances 
under which he's conceived would have to pause and they'd have to ask themselves, is this really any worse than any of the other chosen vessels that God's used in the past? So Matthew's message is a message of, it's a message of hope. It's a message of the final arrival of hope. On one hand, for all those people that wondered if God had forgotten them, whether it was the Jewish nation as a whole that had been sort of sort of languishing in darkness for so long, or whether it was marginalized people outside of traditional religion. Or maybe it was you if you wonder if God would welcome you. If all this all the sort of trappings of traditional church and religion, really, if God has any kind of place for you, this genealogy tells you He does. He does. The birth of Jesus easily answers the question. He came to offer hope to the hopeless, to offer welcome to the outcasts. He came, born of a virgin, specifically for people like you. I hope you hear the message of God's Word this morning. I hope you understand that even a genealogy is given so that God could connect with your soul. So that He could tell you that through all of these centuries and through all of these stories, God sent a Savior to call the unworthy to himself, to call those who needed rescue, to call those who needed forgiveness. He sent this glorified son of David not to dwell with the elites of the world. He sent this glorified son of David, born in such humble circumstances, to connect with everyone who's willing to turn their heart to the Lord and cry out to Him, have mercy on me, Son of David. Father, we're grateful for the time this morning, so grateful for the Word in every capacity. We know that You have inspired it, given it to us, that we might be edified, that we might be equipped, that we might be built up. Help us, Lord, as we embark on this study of Matthew that we could understand what it was in the first century to hear the words, Son of David, to understand the gloom so that we can understand the hope. And I pray that we would be those who are filled with hope this season even as we wait His return, never doubting that you will fulfill your promises. We bless you, Lord. We trust you. We praise you. In Christ's name, amen.